What's up, bingers? This week, we have another great episode for you. She is one of the co-hosts of the Real Crime Profile podcast, and she's here today to talk about her brand new show, which is amazing, Crime Analyst. She's brilliantly British. You know her, you love her, the one and only Laura Richards. The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. I hear you. Can you hear me? I can. Yes. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Very good. You can tell we're in different parts of the country with my bundled up hoodie and you're relaxing in your in your short sleeve t-shirt. It's lovely and sunny here. <laughs> oh yes, I lorded up seeing as it's cold and horrible in the UK at the moment. So yeah, very very lucky to be here. Yeah, we're getting similar weather here too. What they what they have in the UK. I haven't seen the sun in a while, so it's nice to see it reflecting off your walls that it's that that you're getting some there in LA. Yeah, it's lovely. You look like you're in your your studio. It looks rather grand. I am, yeah. That's our new I can here, I can give you a little tour. (laughs) Looks very flash. Our new our new digs. Wow. Love it. Amazing. better Better than the days of recording in my uh in my garden shed with the tractor with the poop on the dog poop on the tires. Yeah, we got to do what we got to do, haven't we? That's the thing. <laughs> right. So, Laura, first things first, I noticed on social media that uh, someone is trying to make an honest woman out of you, uh, and you have recently become engaged. I have, yes. Although I'm already a very honest woman despite that. So, yes, I'm, <laughs> right. I'm, I was bowled over on Christmas Day to uh, be proposed to. It was a, a wonderful, romantic, beautiful proposal. That's that's fantastic. Yeah, I saw. So did you have any idea that was coming? Well, I mean, I knew that at some point we might do because we had talked about it, but I didn't think it was coming on Christmas Day. And in fact, you know, I was saying, come on, let's just keep walking a little bit further as we got to the beach. And my dog Beatrice was pulling back and Umberto was saying, well, let's just take it in for a moment. This is so, you know, such a special moment. Let's just take it all in and just rest for a moment. I said, no, come on, we're doing our cardio. Let's keep going. Let's get to the next tower. So yes, I didn't pick up on the few hints to let's stop and let's just take it all in and have a moment. So yes, he had to had to find a way around that. I was on one of my military moments of cardio and got my head down, want to get my cardio in before Christmas lunch. So yes, it, it really bowled, you know, took me by surprise and bowled me over. Oh, that's that's fantastic. Can you tell me a little bit about your your new fella? Now, I guess he's not new, but the the fellow you're going to marry? Yeah, well, he's not new, actually. We've been together for just over two years. He is very tall. He's six foot five, which I love. But he wow. <laughs> w- has worked in Hollywood for a long time, but actually is from New York originally. And he's a reporter, but he covers his main area of, or his beat, as he calls it, is superhero and superhero movies. So all Captain Marvel, the Marvel and DC all of those cool movies that we get to go to the premieres 
for um, Star Wars, you know, all that genre. So he's been sort of a comic book kid and comic book head since he was a, a young boy. And really, as he says, he's living his dream and being paid for it. Oh, well, that's fantastic. And you get to tag along to all these premieres, do you? I do, yes. Normally, I post on social media as well um, at the ones that we go to. So we went to the Star Wars premiere, which was awesome. But yeah, he's a great guy. You know, we've been living together for a while and we, you know, we're not 21 year olds anymore. And so we both knew, <laughs> knew what we were in the market for and what we wanted and uh, fell in love. You know, not, not, it certainly wasn't whirlwind. I always take my time, as most people know, and get right. to know somebody very well in every circumstance before taking such a big decision. But yes, I mean, it, for me, it's 100% the right decision. We get on incredibly well. And our worlds are, are kind of polar opposites, although he always says to me, you're the real life super shero. You're actually doing this, you know, for a living. But I love the escapism of, you know, being able to jump into the Marvel and DC universe. And he's teaching me about all the characters. And we're going through literally movie by movie at the moment during lockdown. And he's telling me all the backstory. Oh, that's good. That's fantastic. So do you, do you guys have a, well, actually, for, first of all, as you were, as you were saying that you take your time, I had to think that. I wonder if there was a point when he was a little nervous as you were, you know, psychologically picking him apart during the courting process to make yeah, sure we, that, that that he meets your meets your standard. We joked about it many times and you know no one was more surprised than he was that he managed to pull the proposal off without as he said my investigative girlfriend finding right. out, you know, and his mom and all his family were like well, seriously Laura didn't twig because she normally, you know, is on to right. everything. But I genuinely didn't. The only inkling that I had was as we were leaving our house, he kept going back because he kept forgetting things, which was unusual for him. So I did kind of think, you know, and I said to him, you haven't quite got it together yet, have you? <laughs> and so that time that I thought he was slightly, you know, something was a little bit off. And then it was, so we're walking to the beach. We talked about Wonder Woman 84 the whole way down. And of course, uh -huh. he was in his element at that moment as we're <laughs> yeah. talking all the way down to the beach. So he was in flow. And I didn't get any other indicators. But yes, in our relationship, of course, you know, he knows that I'm a behavioral analyst and profiler and you don't stop doing it, you know, at any point in your <laughs> right. life. So I think that's tough in, in some respects, but in another, it's who I am. And he's a very astute analytical person as well. Very perceptive. He knows what's in the room. So, you know, and I love that about him. He's very aware. He's you know, really an alpha geek, as I call him, an alpha geek, but who's emotionally <laughs> intelligent. And uh -huh. for me, that's, it's just such a fantastic combination. Oh, well, that's great. Well, I'm, I'm very happy for you. Do you guys have a date set yet? Well, COVID has been the little fly in the ointment <laughs> right, here. Yeah. Big family are all in New York. Mine are in the UK. We want people to, to be here because it will be a, a wedding in California. So we're, we're thinking it would probably be the summer of 2022 when the, the world hopefully will be open again. Yes, I hope so. Now you have, uh, you know, I've, I was wanting to talk to you already when I started season nine of Truth and Justice before I had this true crime binge idea uh, because of uh, real crime profile and your work there, which, you know, I actually got to be there with you and Jim and Lisa the day you started real crime profile is the day we met. You did, which is amazing. We go back in, yeah. in time. It's almost five, well, it's five years ago now. Yeah, yeah, it was about that. I would just happen to be out in L.A. Jim and I had worked together uh, on some cases, and then I was just out in L.A. I was actually pitching my TV show, 
And Jim's like, oh, come on over. Just come on down to the basement. And I walked in on what was your guys' you know, initial meeting creating real crime profile. It was, and it was, it, it was, it was fantastic. And then watching how amazing that show has become was really cool to know that I was there on the day. I watched you guys, literally watched you guys record episode one of Real Crime Profile. Amazing. And we're very grateful for you, you being there as well. We were still kicking around names and what it should be and, mm-hmm. and format. So yes, it's amazing that we're five years old. In fact, Wondery were the first, uh, we were their first podcast that signed with them. And right. they, they're just having their fifth birthday as well. So, and of course, you've gone mm-hmm. on to do incredible things and we've had you on the show many times as we always enjoy chatting with you yeah it's been it's been a, it's been a neat relationship over these last five years and then as i'm thinking well i want to talk to laura about you know a case from real crime profile i see on social media that that you are you're still doing real crime profile but you have branched off and have created your own podcast called crime analyst so how how did that come about yeah. So, I mean, Real Crime Profile continues on, you know, the, the three of us working together and the cases that we cover. In fact, Crime Analyst is a very complimentary podcast to it. And really, I've been thinking about it for a long time. I've been thinking about uh, the fact that I always want to put victims at the center of their cases. And I do a lot of police training and I still train a lot of agencies all across the world. And what I think is very interesting in the training is I always use lots of case studies to illustrate the points. And I've learned from 25 years of training that police and others really enjoy those case studies. So I was kind of thinking, well, why don't I do that in trying to you know, create a podcast that really showcases crime analysts, which is really what I am. I'm a criminal behavioral analyst. We're the geeks of the crime world. You know, we really are the geeks that get into all the detail, but we're normally in the shadows. We're in the intelligence cells. We're in the background. And so when we arrest someone or when something happens in a case, it's not the analysts that are front and center. It's always the investigating officers. So I really wanted to showcase the amazing work that crime analysts do and that I've done across my career and get into good storytelling that is educational and that informs and really puts the victim at the center of their own stories rather than putting the perpetrator as the focus. Even in terms of episodes, most people name their episode by the perpetrator, not by the victims. And these are all things that I'm starting and, and really want to change in the narrative through the podcast Crime Analyst and through all of my work. Uh, I'm not sure when this will drop or listeners will hear this, but at the time we're recording this, you have dropped your first episode. Uh, which I listened to immediately. I was on, on the plane on my way home from Houston. And I thought it was really neat. So the beginning in the beginning of that episode, you, you were you're talking about a serial killer and you and you began by sharing the names of all of his victims uh, to really put them in the in the forefront of the story before you even got into telling the story, which I thought that was that was that was really touching that you did it that way. Yeah, I mean I always want to honor the victims. And I think with that particular case, so many people know his name. And he, in fact, died at, towards the end of last year. And lots of people who I spoke to, I asked them, do you know any of the victims' names? Not one person could name them. And it just really struck a chord with me that even when I looked online to post something in memory of the victims, that the pictures that I found were just these black and white Mug shots, and some of them were police mug shots, and they were the only sort of memories of the victim. So 
Right at the start, I wanted to make sure people heard their names first of all, even though you know a lot of people said, well, I don't think that would work because you don't really understand the case. And I said, well, I don't care. It works for me. And therefore, it's going to be the way that I shape cases. And then hopefully it will pique people's interest to think, well, I want to know more about Wilma McCann, or I want to understand a bit more about each of the victims, because it's the place that as a behavioral analyst, you always start with victims and victimology. So I'm trying to follow the true form of how I approach a case as well by doing that. And that, that's one of the things that I thought was so, aside from it just being touching, but intriguing about it is from, you know, I've learned a lot from you and a lot from Jim over the years and the cases that I've worked on. You guys have kind of been mentors to me and you all have taught me and my investigations to always, it always starts with the victim just as an investigative path to go through victimology and do that. So as I'm listening to it, that was the first thing I was thinking was, you know, this is how you do it. The first thing you have to do is learn about the victims before you can even begin starting to break down the crime scene and things like that. So I think it's a really unique and interesting approach. And then, and then you follow it up with, you know, because at the beginning, you're, you know, if, if you're listening to this and it's your first time and you hear in this first case, there's, you know, what, 20 names, there was 13 victims and seven, there were seven attempted murders on top of that. You know, so that takes a bit of time. But then the storytelling is, is fantastic. The sound design's great. The storytelling's great as you move on throughout the episode. And I have to say that, and, and I, I am going to say the name here so that our, our listeners here know what we're talking about. We're talking about the, the serial killer in question here is, is a guy named Peter Sutcliffe. He was coined by newspapers as it's things that we tried not to do anymore, but he was called the Yorkshire Ripper. So if you're wanting to look up this case, but you know, you mentioned that early and then said, from now on, we're not going to say his name anymore because he doesn't matter. And so instead of calling him Peter Sutcliffe, you refer to him as PS through the whole thing, which I immediately love because my brain and my 10-year-old brain immediately went, piece of shit. That's how we remember this guy. (laughs) (laughs) So this is the victim's name and this is the piece of shit that killed her. Uh, So well done. (laughs) I don't know if that crossed your mind when you decided to go that route. Well, I mean, it didn't in the sense of you came up with piece of shit, but I like that. But in another way, it came up to my head that this is postscript, you know, PS. Uh It's like a his postscript is at the end and he doesn't really matter. So that's really what I want people to think about, that really he should be insignificant. And my work is about stripping out the learning. You extrapolate Uh the learning and then you forget who they are. And that's why every training process presentation, I always have victims' faces. Like when I'm training police officers or any domestic homicide review, it's the victim's face front and center. So yes, and then we just initial the perpetrator. But I'm I'm flattered to, you know, for you to say um that Jim and I are mentors. And you know, every time I hear that from someone, I walk 10 feet taller because I know that and you changed your narrative and very respectfully for the victims and just using hashtags like hashtag her name was Wilma McCann, just censoring them, you know, even in the hashtags that we use for the families, it matters so much to them that they see their family member memorialized in that way with such respect and and dignity and integrity. And I I mean that when I say you guys have been mentors and I've learned a lot. I mean, in so many ways, so right now I'm getting ready Again, by the time this airs, season 10 of Truth and Justice will be out. But at this point right now, I'm beginning my investigation into that new case. And I have my big, I call it my murder board, my big giant bulletin board that I keep track of each case on. And every time it's always like, it's almost ceremonial. The first thing that I do is print off 
a big eight by ten photo of the victim and place it dead in the center. And then I even even the photos of suspects and everything else I put on the board, I print smaller and four by six photos to go around the big picture of the victim. And, and really, I mean, back in 2017, when you know I, I started investigating the West Memphis Three case, uh, which is what the, the one the show that we ended up taking to Oxygen and our my docu series was on. I picked up that case for exactly this reason from working with you guys, you know, consulting with you and having you guys help me with cases. It's always so much about the victims. And I just started, I wanted to learn about the West Memphis Three case. So I watched a few documentaries and realized after I watched these three documentaries, I don't know the victims' names. I know Damien Eccles and I know Jason Baldwin and I know Jesse Miss Kelly, but I don't know Stevie Branch, Michael Moore, or Christopher Byers. And then I start asking around people in the crew, true crime space, what were the victims' names? Like, I don't, uh, Billy, Bob, I mean, nobody knew because the focus had always been on. Now, in that case, those three, I believe, are innocent, but still, they were the focus, and there was never a focus on the victims, and that's what launched me into that case, and that was all from, you know, the teachings that I received from you and Jim. Yeah, and you did a brilliant job on that, I have to say, and, and the Oxygen Show, so congratulations, because it's a new contribution. And I think that part's so important. And of course, you know, Jesse and Damien, and, you know, they were, they were victims too. But mm-hmm. we can't forget those who were, were murdered and so brutally murdered. And, and so we kind of create a false narrative when that happens. And that's really what Crime Analyst is about. It's about looking at the facts and the evidence, challenging the dominant narrative at times and correcting it where it needs to be corrected. And, you know, the case that I chose to start with came to me multiple ways. It came to me because it was the start of my career that my unit was set up because of that case. And yet, yeah, because of it, it was the Byford report. So all the failings that came out were really highlighted by someone called Lord Byford in a report that was put together that only went to a few people that were very senior and government officials. And my unit was set up to make sure a Peter Sutcliffe didn't happen again, i.e. how do you identify stranger rape, stranger murder, and abductions when you've got a serial perpetrator? But the problem for me was the, the, the ethos of the unit was right, but everything I'd been told about the case was not. It was incorrect when I started digging. And I started digging, and as I tell the story on Crime Analyst, when a, a director for a documentary asked me, would I appear on documentary for the 40th anniversary? And when I started to analyze, I went you know, back to lots of things that had been written and listened to Richard McCann. And I did my homework, which is what I always do to see if I can contribute, because I don't just do a talking head role if I haven't got really anything to say. I'm not about just having media spotlight. I don't need it in my life. But if I've got something genuine to contribute, then I will. And the more I dug in, the more I realized that what I'd been told about what he was doing wasn't an accurate portrayal of what he actually did. And that really piqued my interest when I found a number of near misses before Wilma's case, which before I knew nothing about. And it changed the whole understanding for me of the case of what he did and how he did it and why he did it. And even now in this deep dive, I'm finding out so many new things that just literally I have my mind blown every day on this case that I'm just going through so much material, analyzing so much. You can't see it in, in my, this is my intelligence cell, but on the side, I've got a huge uh, whiteboard 
that I've literally got, you know, columns of my analysis in and my crazy mind maps of all the new things that I want to talk about that I just wasn't aware of. And so it is a genuine reinvestigation with my contemporary lens now. And I really want the listeners to hear my thought process as it happens. So it's authentic. And as you know, jumping on the mic and recording, I mean, you have these moments at three o'clock in the morning or six in the morning. And so I'm jumping on to, to document by letting my listeners know these moments but it really is a mind-blowing case on, on so many levels. It, it truly is. Yeah. And so and to be clear, so you were, you were not part of the initial investigation that was botched. You were part of the team that was reviewing that to see where it went wrong. Well, I didn't view any of it. My, I was a baby analyst coming in at this inception okay. point of the sexual offenses unit at New Scotland Yard. So I knew about the case and I knew the report, the Byford report, not that I had read it all because it was only a few people who were allowed to read it, even in policing circles. And I mean, there is, it it was released in 2016, most of it, because a journalist requested it to be released. Sorry, in 2006, I should say it was released in 2006. Now you think that report was written in 1982. So why didn't they release it for so long? And there are still pages missing, Bob, which I've put in an FOIA request, a FOIA request, because I want those missing pages. And so really, a report that informs why your unit's being set up, but you don't get to read the report. Well, who, who really learns? Right. What was the point? Yeah. In my analysis of, of this case, once and for all, is ensure that the true learning is out there. And that true learning is for everybody. It's for law enforcement. It's for, you know, the families. It's prevention messages for everybody. And I believe that true learning now must take place. Otherwise, why keep things hidden? It it's, doesn't feel transparent and doesn't feel like there's integrity there. But I know that there are a lot of dark and murky things that went on in this case. And, and that's why it's very concerning because there's lot, there were lots of not just missteps, there were some major issues and there were some people wrongfully convicted as well. There were people who had their lives ruined because of decisions that were taken that lacked integrity. And I want to expose it all because I think it's time 40 years on that the families got the truth of what really happened. The one thing that jumped out at me was the fact that, you know, like you said, there was wrongful convictions. There was 13 women killed. There were seven attempted murders. That we know about it. And in the meantime, while this is happening, did I understand correctly that the police actually interviewed Peter Sutcliffe nine times throughout that process and just kept, you know, interviewing him and letting him go? And then he'd go kill again. And they'd interview him and they'd let him go and he'd go kill again, just over and over and over again. Yes. I mean, it was actually, I've established there were 14 victims that were, I believe, that were, were, that were murdered by him. There were another nine near misses. And then there's potentially another 20 odd murders that I'm looking at at the moment. Um, and there are other near misses too. So the scale of it, bearing in mind, he operated from, that we know of from 1967 to 1981. It wasn't five years and he was a long distance lorry driver. So he jumped in his car even before he's a lorry driver and traveled across the country. So it wasn't just in Yorkshire and Manchester. But yes, they, they effectively spoke with him. He had, there was police contact on at least 11 occasions that I've found so far. But they interviewed him 
as a potential suspect nine times in the case, um, but he was already known to them a number of times before for violence towards women. And that is a big key area. It's a big red flag for me. It, it's current for my work present day of saying, you need to understand who you're dealing with. And that if someone's violent to women, they're violent to women. You have to think about all women right. and the risk that they pose. But each time they interviewed him, the way that he presented was so different to the person that they thought that they were hunting. And all of that was a major problem loaded with the moniker, the Yorkshire R word, that it created this mythology that they thought they were hunting this sort of mythical beast with a very different accent because of these hoaxer tapes that were sent in. So I'm going to unpick all of that. But yes, to interview someone nine times as a potential suspect and to eliminate him on zero criteria, I have to say, just based on uh, someone thinking his accent wasn't right is really mind-blowing. Did it play into this at all? Because we see this a lot, I know, in, you know if, if you step back into the 70s and 80s, Jeffrey Dahmer, for an example, things like that, where a lot of times the victims maybe are considered undesirable by police, and therefore they don't put their full efforts into this. In this case, P.S. had began, I think, in working in residential areas, and then he moved to the red light districts and was, you know, was, was murdering uh, mostly prostitutes. And, and, and so they were, it seems like they were, as you said, the pictures you find are all mugshots and things of the victims. Did the fact that he was, that, that he was attacking, murdering prostitutes from the red light districts, do you think that hampered the investigation because of creating some apathy on the part of the police? Well, I think it did in one respect. I, I think you're right, but I don't think that that's the full explanation of what was happening. Um, only five of the women were prostitutes. Okay. 19 plus were not. And all the women who were attacked before Wilma clearly weren't. Some of them were children. One was a 14-year-old girl. Right. You know, these attacks are incredibly rare. And I've worked numerous cases where women have been hit over the back of the head, blunt force trauma, and killed in what some of my police colleagues would say was a motiveless murder, which I always say there's no such thing as a motiveless murder. But Women being hit over the back of the head, when they have been reporting to the police, and most of them were rushed to hospital, very serious injuries, even those who weren't prostitutes were dismissed, and they weren't fully investigated. That's a big problem. And that talks a lot more, I believe, what I'm uncovering is misogyny. And that's the biggest barrier of not taking women seriously, being misogynistic, um, not prioritizing it. There, there's no other explanation for why you wouldn't, in one small area where you've got multiple women, 14-year-old girl, another woman who was out, Olive Smelt, out at a pub with her friends and was returning home to her, her husband, Harry, who was at home. She was hit over the back of the head, rushed to hospital, not thoroughly investigated. You know, there are multiple cases before Wilma where they, the police investigation seemed to be completely lacking. And I have no explanation for that other than Tracy, by her own account, she was 14. She just felt the police didn't take her seriously because she was young. And when she went back into the police two years later, she had a newspaper cutting for an attack on another woman. There was a photo fit and the other woman was Marilyn Moore. And she said, the guy who attacked me is this man here. 
and she was with her mum. And the police constable on the front counter said to her, well, aren't we having fun and games today now, love? And her mother got really angry. A detective, you know, as you would do, she was saying, we've tried to report a serious matter here. My daughter was almost killed two years ago. A detective came out, spoke to the mum and sort of calmed her down and took their details. It was never followed up. No one ever got back into contact with Tracy or her mother. And that this was all within sort of a five mile square radius, you know, where the attacks were happening. And back in the day, back in the 70s, it was a lot more about local community policing. I, you knew on your patch what was going on. And it wasn't like they could say, oh, we've had about 20 women hit over the back of the head. You know, so we've got so many cases, it's difficult to know. These are cases that really stand out. So just the, the police constable saying to the mother, well, aren't we having fun and games today now, love? A, it's totally patronizing, but B, it's right. completely inappropriate. And C, it, it, I think it's an insight into how women were treated at the time. Right. You know, and, and along those lines, I, I want to, outside of the podcast, you do a lot of work still in the UK to try to change some laws and, and how policing is being done. Can you talk just briefly about the, the work you're I know you t- when we were arranging this interview that you're you're working on an amendment for a bill right now. So can you talk a little bit about what you do outside of podcasting and TV and all that, just the, the work you're doing to try to change things and make them better in the UK? Yeah. I mean, it all interlinks actually, Bob, because this case was 40 years ago, but actually one of the baronesses read out my briefing in parliament at the beginning of January for the domestic abuse bill, because I was saying that 40 years on, the lessons from PS's case have not been learned. That if people understood serial offenders, he should have been on their radar for all his offending behavior before he killed Wilma. But he wasn't because people think that abusing women or hitting women on the head isn't a priority and shouldn't be seen as something serious. So I'm, I'm still requesting that serial perpetrators are taking seriously. And I say requesting, I'm demanding now because I, r- I wrote my first report in at New Scotland Yard and it was published in 2004. And the report was called Getting Away With It, a profile of the domestic violence, sexual and serious offenders. And it was the first time anyone had looked at three months worth of domestic violence offenders who were raping their partners and committing serious violence on them and looked at them backwards, i.e. John James committed a violent act or a sexual act on his partner in March 2001. I took the first three months. I looked at everything we held intelligence-wise on him and profiled him. And I took 450 of those individuals and I found that they were very dangerous men. And in fact, one in 12 of them were raping in the home and outside they were committing the stranger rapes, i.e. they're one and the same. So that was my first report, which really changed the way the Metropolitan Police Service, that we policed domestic violence. We went on the proactive. With domestic violence perpetrators, I would write up their names and their intelligence profile, and we had a proactive team who went after them overtly, covertly, and we problem-solved them because we knew domestic violence wasn't you know, people would say, well, it's just a, a domestic. We'd say it was serious crime and it leads to murder. But this hasn't become a national or statutory way of doing business. 
So even now I'm writing, we've just tabled an amendment in the domestic abuse bill that's back in Parliament in the House of Lords. Uh, the committee stage starts on the 25th of January. And the amendment that Baroness Jam Royal has tabled on my behalf with all of my partners and other charities and agencies that support it is for serial domestic violence perpetrators and stalkers to be proactively identified, assessed and managed by police, prison and probation, and that it's a national statutory system and process that everybody does it across the country because perpetrators travel. And people like PS, he travelled the length and breadth of the UK. Therefore, the crimes are all over. So, you know, a lot of my work it has very real world consequences. I write a lot of briefing reports. And in fact, on serial perpetrators, I've written probably about 15 different reports that are very lengthy and evidence-based. And the most recent was in July when lockdown happened and the domestic abuse bill was in the House of Commons because our parliamentary process, I mean, it's a little uh, confusing for, for folk, I would imagine, but you have a bill and it goes into the House of Commons first and it has to reach its full stage of being read a number of times and different amendments being debated and then they vote on what stays in it and then it goes to the House of Lords and it has to be agreed upon in both houses before it receives royal assent. So we're almost at the second big stage of it being in the House of Lords for it to be debated for the first time, which means it's very busy for me because I have to mobilise and uh, ensure that people have the briefings that they need so that the lords and the baronesses in the House of Lords, they have an informed uh, understanding of what we're asking for so that when they vote on it, it's an informed vote. So it means I have to rally and mobilise a lot of people and send a lot of briefings, uh, which is what I'm in at the moment. And you never know where it will be tabled in the order. Um, it could be that you're right at the back, which is what we are. We're Amendment 164. So they've got a lot to get through before they get to, to, to my amendment. But the key thing that I want to see happen and the shift is that we stop asking questions about victims of domestic violence of why didn't she leave and why didn't she do this? And we look at John James, the perpetrator, we look at their history and we're proactive and we problem solve that person, just like you would do a terrorist, just like you would do a sex offender that it's taken that seriously. Well, that's awesome. I, I, I admire all the work you do. I don't know. How, do you ever sleep? Not much, no. And particularly <laughs> at the moment, because sometimes all these things converge. I mean, it, it's great, right. but at the same time, sometimes things will come together um, and you don't want to miss a moment. You know, I always say it's like surfing, that you create momentum. And then when you build it, you've got to jump on the surfboard and keep surfing until you've finished you know, the wave. And at the moment I'm right in the peak of the wave. Yeah. That makes it. Well, I think it makes sense. I've never surfed. Are you, are you actually a surfer? I am. Yes. Is, is there anything you don't do? Um, I'm, well, bowling's not my, my forties, but yes, I love all sport. <laughs> I'm a big sports person, you right. know, when I have time. And for me, it's like my, you know, my therapy, I guess it being in uh -huh. the water, being in the mountains, that's my therapy mm -hmm. time and my time out to re sure. re regenerate and uh, do something active. I love being active. Well, that, that's fantastic. So the, the, before I let you go, so the podcast, as I said, it, it's just launched. I jumped in, listened to the first episode. It's fantastic. Uh, it sounds like you're going you're gonna to continue this deep dive 
into P.S. the piece of shit P- Peter Sutcliffe. Is that intended to be the focus of the of the entire podcast? Or are you going to like cover his case and then move to another case? Or what's the plan going forward? Yeah. So this case, because it's so big and it's growing all the time, um, it will be you know a number, probably about ten episodes. I'm trying to keep it very very lean. There is so much that I could do. Um, and in fact, I released episode two, which was an interview with Wilma McCann's son, Richard. And what I will say about that, it's probably one of the most powerful and thought-provoking interviews that I've ever done across my whole career. He is truly an inspirational man. And just the things that he says turns the case on its head. And I think everyone should listen to it because Richard just is such a considered and reflective and compassionate man in spite of everything that's happened. And he talks very clearly about why, even if his mother was a prostitute, which she wasn't, by the way, she was called a good time girl and the police called her that, but there was no evidence to suggest she was. But what Richard says is, even if she were, why look down on her? She's doing everything to feed us, her children. Why don't you judge and look down on the men, the fathers who should be providing and who are not? And just in those moments, you start to see things differently. And I've had so many messages from social workers, from police saying, it's just shifted the way I understand my work. You know, so there's brilliant moments from Richard and why we shouldn't use the R word and, and many other things. So, and I've got other interviews down the pipe. So, at the moment, I'm going where the evidence takes me, and there are a lot of near-miss cases and murders that I need to look at thoroughly, and it really is just this authentic, deep dive. So I can't even say, people are saying, well, will it be 10 or will it be 12? But once this um, series wraps, I may do a number of one-off different cases, uh-huh. and I'm going to track some of them across my career, because there's quite a few that I would like to look at again. And I've had lots of people say, I would love to help you. And, you know, I'd love you to interview me, some of the original people in some of these cases. Um, so, yes, there'll be one off interviews. I'm hoping you'll come on, Bob, and uh, various other people where we can talk about oh, cases. Yeah, which will be awesome. And uh, there'll be other series that, you know, might be two parts, three parts, wh- whatever it takes. As you know, when you're the writer, the researcher, the producer, you can really make your own decisions and have control over your content, which is what I really love about it, I have to say. Yeah, I like to call it white knuckle podcasting when you get up on Monday morning and you have till Friday to come up with an episode and produce it. And uh, so it's it's awesome. You're kind of doing it almost in real time too. And I know that's tricky. The production is great. Her name is Laura Richards. The podcast is Crime Analyst. And it just might be your next big true crime binge. Laura, thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Bob. I've really enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you. True Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. 
If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is truecrimebinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening, and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge.